Hey friends, welcome to another episode of the Great Day Podcast. I'm your friend and host, Mayor K. Today we're sitting with Tzvi Gluck, founder of Amudim. Listen, I thought I was a busy guy until I met Tzvi. He is non-stop. His phone is ringing, texts, whatsapps are rolling in. He's unbelievable. And he is the founder of Amudim, a nonprofit that helps people in time of crises and are the pillars for victims of abuse, addiction, neglect, and other crisis matters. This podcast, Heads Up, is raw, it's real, and it doesn't shy away from the realness and challenges that show up in life. I want to say, just take this moment to thank Amudim for all the special work that they do. And without further ado, my conversation with Sri Gluck. Sitting here across from me is Sri Gluck, the founder, executive vice president of Amudim and his office. Thank you so much for having us. I'm like, I'm honored because you, you, before we started this conversation, we started this podcast, you're like, you made some phone calls. You're like, okay guys, I'm turning off my phone for the next hour, which is crazy because your phone is always glued to your ear. So to be, to, to shut down for an hour, it's like, I feel partially responsible for anything that goes wrong on this, on the next hour or so. So in all fairness, first of all, it's an honor to have you here. So thank you. And don't worry about it. I didn't really turn off my phones. I turned the ringers off and I forwarded my phones to my assistant so that if there's anything that needs to be dealt with, right, it will great. be. And my conscience is clear now. Okay. Cause that's, yeah, cause don't, I mean, don't feel, uh, if anybody is, and if they do need me, they will walk right through those doors and say, we need you. So don't worry about it. Incredible. Yeah. Amazing. Amazing. Well, I mean, just kick it off. I mean, with Amudim, Amudim, for those who don't know, Amudim means, uh, pillars, and it can be seen by the by the um, by the logo of a mudim. But I think of a mudim. If I hear that, I, I didn't know about the holy work that you do. I would assume that a mudim is a it's a Torah you know institution, the pillars of the Jewish community, the pillars of of Orthodox community. But not not what in the kind of work that you're involved in. It's but but you have, obviously you feel that when it comes down to pillars, it's not necessarily has to refer to only Torah, but what the work that you do. So it's interesting. You know, we came up with the name Amudim, ironically. Because my wife, myself, and my children, we learn Pirkei Avos every week. And when we got to the component of, you know, the world stands on three pillars, Torah, Avodah, Gemilas, Chasadim, we said, wow, that's a great word. And then right after Shabbos, I translated pillars into Hebrew and figuring out what the proper connotation is and saw that Amudim.org was available, and that's how the name got created. But the real reason behind it was for Amudim to be the pillars of support for those in need, so that they can become pillars for themselves and for their own loved ones, families, and communities. So the connotation of the pillars, which is why the logo was actually designed as, you know, three sizes going up, is that we want to show growth. And that's Mm. really the key component. That's amazing. And I mean, to take us just a little idea of like, you know, it says changing lives and futures. I mean, you're really, besides changing lives, you're saving lives. Um. We, we, you know, we're pawns on a very big chessboard. Um, it's really, I mean, it's really the staff, I have to say that wholeheartedly. They, they give of everything. Um, and yeah, absolutely. If we did not feel that we're saving lives, if we did not see the difference and see the change, which, and Amudim is not always easy. You know, we're like those, you know, the place that as soon as we're done helping people, they very often, not all, but very often they want to forget we existed because we bring back their darkest time of their life. Mm. And thereby you don't always get that you know great feeling of oh we got invited to a wedding of somebody that we helped but it does happen and when it does happen it just gives us that great ability to keep going because we got to focus on the wins more than the losses for sure but i mean just to give some context for those who do not know about your organization Mudim, i mean I just- first of all it's not my organization it's the world's organization i have the honor to run it Fair enough. Fair like enough. To just say that. Okay. Okay. All right. Deal. I mean, and that's something that I mean really shows forth in your in the way of being and like the incredible work that you do. I mean, even settling this this conversation, this podcast, we have to like book it way in advance and then changing. I mean, you're always traveling, you're always moving, you're always shaking. There's so much going on in your life, which which blows my mind about how you're able to balance, you know, your life, your family, your children, plus all the work that you're doing, which is which is a whole, a whole thing. But I appreciate that. So what what is Amudim for those who don't know in, in, in a brief, you know, three, four sentences? So Amudim is what we like to call a uh, comprehensive clinical case management awareness and intervention organization dedicated on three main components, helping victims slash survivors of sexual abuse, helping people struggling 
with all sorts of addictions as well as their families and their inner support circle and helping those with mental illness. The way in which we try to operate is by creating a cohesive environment with a 30,000 foot view. It's not just focusing on the person in need, but focusing on their world, focusing on their support structure, whether it's a husband giving the wife the tools that she needs to deal with the husband, whether it's parents and children, because what we've learned is it's not just about getting the person to help, but it's about creating a system. <clears throat> Excuse me. It's by creating a system that which everybody around them can understand what they're going through mm -hmm. and be there for them. All too often, people don't realize that those suffering from these areas, it's not, it's not always their choice. Nobody woke up in the morning and said, I want to be an addict. Sure. Nobody chose to be abused. Nobody chose to have mental illness. But when you hear about somebody who, God forbid, has cancer, the whole world comes and, you know, oh, let's do something. When it comes to these areas, you know, I mean, listen, a lot of work has been done and there's a lot of great organizations out there, but there's still so much more that needs to be done. And what we do is we provide the clinical case management without the clinical work, meaning all of our staff are all clinicians, but they're not working as clinicians. The reason why we hire clinicians, which is much more costly than just hiring, you know, case managers, is because if somebody calls up and says, hi, this and this just happened, we would like somebody who understands that to get them the best help that they need as quickly as possible. So having a clinician helping to manage the care makes it that much easier, picking the proper therapist, the proper rehab, the proper treatment facility, the proper intervention. Now, at the same time, we're not a referral agency. Mm. We're not saying, here, go to this place. We're case managers. So we will speak to the clients, to the families, to the facilities, to the treatment professionals every week just to make sure things are going well. And if after a couple of weeks it's not, then we'll have to switch courses. We'll have to find them you know, another treatment plan. So that's your really, feet on the ground. You're not just there, okay, here you absolutely. go, here's a number, and now move on to the next right. thing. You're actually there throughout the whole process, supporting, managing, making sure that people get the right care that they need. Absolutely. And then the follow-up afterwards as well. And then the other big side is the awareness, which, you know, I mean, you and I both had the honor of uh, being, you know, co-recipients of 36 under 36 just uh, yeah. a few short years ago. True, true. Um, and right. that was based on the awareness that we've done, you know, putting out the PSA videos, doing um, events, you know, helping to destigmatize these issues. You know, we got to break the stigma. So what what is the biggest, I mean, before that, what is, when was the first case that took place in, in I guess, maybe the in Orthodox community history that so something happened, perhaps someone got abused or someone got addicted, that the response was, let's put it under the rug instead of saying, hey, let me talk about this and maybe help other people. When was the first case? What I mean is like, what? Like, I mean, what, why did we go down that road of hiding rather than saying, hey, let me help my fellow through my experience? So I think it's a little bit of a, of a, of a catch-22. The concept of keeping things under the rug is definitely true, but I don't think that it, or at least I would like to believe that it wasn't done as a deliberate act. It was more of like, we're living in a shtetl. Something happened. There's no reason to let others know. We'll fix it internally. And a lot of people really thought that they were doing the right thing. They really felt that what they were doing was helping, not realizing they were causing more damage than good. So I don't think <clears throat> that it was like a... <clears throat> I don't think that it was a orchestrated effort, but I'll tell you the crazy part. Hmm. No matter what community we deal with, Hasidic, Litvish, modern Orthodox, secular, not Jewish, it makes no difference. And we deal with people from all sides of the coin. It's the exact same game plan. So it's not just in one community or another. I think it's inherent human nature. Something happened. We deal with it internally. We'll figure it out. And sadly, that's not the right response. Right. Just thinking that, like, you know, I, I found in my own life, like, anytime I feel like I have control over something, that's the slippery slope. Once I feel like I could handle this, I don't have to reach out for help. I could do this all internally, not giving over the power to somebody else, whether it's a higher power, whether it's to friends, family, then I, you know, it's, it's, it's okay to lean on other people. So it's actually funny you say that. And I'm not sure when this is getting broadcasted, but I uh, am going to be issuing a op-ed today. Um, on that exact topic where I'll just say it here yeah, because might as well. It. So we just finished the 13th cycle of Dafyomi, right? Finishing the Talmud, 2,711 pages. Amazing. How does the Gemara start? What is the first Mishnah that we learn about when can you say Shema at night? And what's the first story in the Mishnah? Rev Gamliel's sons come home and say, hey, pops, we, um, <clears throat> we're at a Beit Mishteh, house of drinking. Is it too late for us to recite the Shema? And when I, when I heard that story, I wow. was like, that's that's I, I got to figure out what meaning this really is. And I'll tell you, I looked at the Rambam because that's, 
my go-to for everything. <clears throat> and um, I looked at the Rambam, and the Rambam says that it was a uh, high-end wine celebration for wealthy people. Oh, wow. So A fundraiser. It now just hit me. Well, either a fundraiser or a party. Yeah. But now it hit me. What is Shema? Shema is accepting that God is our higher authority. That is what Shema is. He is our higher authority. So the Gemara is starting off with the recovery world. We have to surrender to a higher authority. Then we talk about somebody drinking, coming home, and instead of his father yelling at him and throwing him out of the house and saying, you're a nobody, no, my son, say the prayer, say Shema. You can get a new beginning. And we start every day with the Shema prayer. We end every night with the Shema prayer because we're showing that every day is a new day. Yes. So to me, that was just like, wow. Wow, that's, that's a very powerful concept because I, a lot of, a, a combination with addiction is a lot of shame and guilt and like beating of despair, beating oneself up. What a beautiful way of expressing that. Like, no, it's a, a couple of fronts. That A, from a parental point of view or, or someone who's like family-wise, like, hey, whatever you did thus far is okay. You can still show up and, and connect. And also from a, a higher power God perspective is like, don't beat yourself up. Don't, don't, you know, there is no misconnection between us. You, you could renew that connection right now. Don't get lost in your head. Don't beat yourself down. You could, you could reconnect right now. That's, Absolutely. Yeah, that's, that's. To me, it was just, and I was literally sitting at this table, you know, learning with my learning partner. Wow. And, and as we started learning the Mishnah, I was like, stop. And I started taking notes and he's like, Tzvi, what are you doing? And I said, no, 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 this is much more than you can ever imagine. And he just looked at me like I was crazy. Now, <laughs> thank God he doesn't understand the world of recovery, which is, it's a blessing for those that don't. But at least, you know, you got to look at the positive of everything. Did you grow up in, in a world um, within your family or close friends that, that had abuse or addiction that, that you saw or experienced firsthand? So it's, it's actually interesting. Um, thank God, not in the family, but yes, with close friends. I grew up in Bar Park. I went to Hasidish yeshivas, Hasidish camps. Um, I heard of things. I saw things. I had no idea what they were. Mm -hmm. I, you know, um, my parents educated me very young. And by the time I was nine or 10 years old and I realized what was going on, my parents took me out of the Hasidish yeshiva because I said, I can't watch not the physical abuse, not the emotional abuse, what we assumed was some of the sexual abuse within some of the camps we went to. I said, just, you got to get me out of this. And they did. Wow. Now, I didn't know the details of what it really was. And I'm looking now at some of my friends from back then and where their life has taken them. And it's pretty scary. But mm. what really was the turning point for me was at about 19 years old. Well, let me preface by saying I grew up in a house of, of chesed, of good deed. My father was one of the founding members of Atzala. Yeah. My father was one of the original drafters of the New York State autopsy law. My father's been involved in public service for over 65, 70 years now. He's, can I know how Rabbi Edgar Gluck. Rabbi yeah. Edgar Gluck. Oh, he's I mean, a legend. He's, yeah. he's a legend and he's sure. always been my mentor and my hero. And I swore growing up in that house, I will never go into public service. <laughs> I, and I say this all the time. <laughs> just because of the way he, he was just never around. Well, just like, he was the only game in town. You yeah. know, now you have every, you know, there's everybody. 20 organizations and everybody knows somebody. You know, when I was growing up, it was Rabbi Edgar Gluck. That's mm -hmm. it. Or in the Hasidic world, Rabbi Chaim Burich Gluck. But either way, he was the, he was the person. When I was 19 years old, two things happened back to back. First thing was a good friend of mine died of a car accident while he was high. It's a very okay. famous story back then, which nobody spoke about yet. He rolled over on the Garden State Parkway. Oh, wow. Um, and that hit me hard. And then one of my roommates hung himself in the shower of a dorm room with a suicide note about who molested him and why he did so. Wow. So those two things to me were very, very personal. And at that point, our place had just opened up. So I started volunteering there um, when I could. Our place is... In Brooklyn, it's a draw. I'm sorry. I, yeah, you know, I like, assume that everybody yeah. knows everything yeah. I know, you know. Exactly, exactly. Just to give Our some context. Place Our place is, is, is a drop-in center in Brooklyn uh, for teens at risk. Now they have a boys' location and a girls' location. They also have a uh, another division called the Living Room, which was for post-sobriety, right. um, which is an amazing program as well. But at that point, it was our place, and I used to go there as a mentor, and then... Slowly, as these kids started getting arrested, I would be the guy that would get the call to like, okay, your father has connections, can you help? Right. And so, then I started so, developing. So you're, like, you're just 19, these guys, your friends, they're all getting in trouble and you're like the go-to guy. Like, yo, how are you have some pull? Can right. you make a connection, make and a phone call? And that's pretty much what happened. And then at that point, my father sits me down one day and goes, okay, Tzvi, like, let's get real. You're involved, let's introduce you to the right people. And then on the other side, my father 
whenever he would leave town, he would always leave his pager. I love this story. Pager. Like, <laughs> yeah. who has a pager? pager a, a pager was a device that you would dial a phone number and you'd hear a weird beeping sound and you would <laughs> enter a phone number and push pound and then the person would receive it just with a number and know to call that person back. Yeah, for those very, very who, efficient. For very, those who don't know what a pager all was. All the 90, 90s and 2000 yeah, babies. Like, you know? what, what's a pager? Yeah, yeah. And one time my father was leaving to Europe and I said, Ta, can I have your pager this time? Instead of him giving it to one of his assistants. And the smile on his face was like, wow. wow. And this was a Sunday morning and he gives me his pager. And the pager goes off and it was a very unfortunate situation. A young, a young father had passed away while playing, uh, I think it was basketball or something. And there was a problem, autopsy prevention, burial, the whole nine yards. So I, I got the page. I called back the person who called. I then went to my father's house. I opened his Rolodex, which was before Palm Pilots and smartphones. That was how you actually wrote down people's names and numbers based on alphabetical you <laughs> Just know, sifting listing. through these, these little and cards. I, and I'll never forget, I called up the chief medical examiner of New York City on his cell phone, which wow. he, he was on a golf course. And, and his you're cell what, like phone, 21? You're... I was 20, 21, wow. yeah. Wow. And his, his cell phone was like a briefcase phone. And I called him up and I said, hi, Dr. Hirsch. My name is Tzvi Gluck. I'm Rabbi Gluck's son. I don't know what I'm supposed to ask you to do. Here's the name of the person that died. They want to bury him today. Please just call me back when it's all done. That was it. <laughs> that was it. That was it. Wow. I had no idea what I was doing. <laughs> and you said so. Like, I have no idea what's going on here. This, is, the this is what happened. Wow. He calls me back 30 minutes later. And of course, at that point, I had to stay by my father's house to wait for the phone to ring because the, you know, no I, I didn't have a cell phone. Yeah. And um, he calls back 30 minutes later and he goes, listen, it's all done. Send the funeral home to take the body. Death certificate is signed. Do whatever you need to do. And you please make sure that when your father gets back, you and him come see me right away. And I got a little nervous and I did not tell my father anything while he was gone. When he came back, I told him. And he's like, oh no, you got me into trouble. Eh, but you know what? You didn't get me into trouble because you did the right thing. And we end up showing up at the medical examiner's office literally like the day after my father comes back. And Dr. Hirsch gets up, gives me this big hug. And he says, Tzvi, you've got chutzpah. Yeah. And that's what you need to follow your father's footsteps. <sighs> and that was like, wow. So that was really where it started. And then for about 15 years, I was like, literally like a joke, like a, a lone soldier roaming out of my car. I, had a, I was working as a paramedic. I worked in real estate, but I was always busy with this and that and getting this one into rehab and that one getting arrested and this one, somebody passing away in some foreign country. And then a good friend of mine, um, you know, I'll just say it, I hope he doesn't get upset at me, but a very good friend of mine, Laser Shiner, basically called me in one day and said, enough of this. You know, you're too busy uh, trying to make a living while you're helping Kalei Yisrael. Let me just help you and you help people. Mm. Stop trying to do all these other things. Just stick to what you're good at. Amazing. And he literally took me under his wing for a good few years. And then he started pressuring me saying, okay, Tzvi, uh, this is ridiculous. You, you can't handle this all alone. You got to take it up a notch. You got to. Wow. And I was like, laser, things are perfect now. I, I get a salary. I'm helping those I can. What more do you want? He goes, Tzvi, you got to step it up. You know, Claudius Roll needs you. The community needs you. Even people outside of Claudius Roll, you got to step it up. You got to make an organization. I said, oh, organization, got to raise money, boards, So on tons of this moment, it's just really more mom and pop. You'll get a phone call, you'll help out, but you're getting your salary, you're comfortable. Right. Things right. were great. Yeah. Things were great. Yeah. I mean, I lived in a small apartment. My expenses weren't that great. My wife had a good job. You know, like it was awesome. It was perfect. I had no aspirations of buying a house. I, you know, I didn't need any of these things. Sure. But he kept pushing me saying, Tzvi, you got to do it. I said, okay, you know what? Uh, I'm not the most religious guy in the world, but God sends me a sign and I'll, I'll make it happen. Maishi Wolfson, very good friend of mine. His father passed away. His father, the legendary Zev Wolfson, who sure. changed the world of Kirov in, in the world, not just America. And the first grandchild born that was going to be named Zev was Maishi's grandson. So after the bris, Maishi says, hey, come to my house. Let's, uh, you know, let, let's the schmooze. Again, I wasn't working for anybody, so I could do what I want, right? Right. I get to his house, and as I'm sitting in his house, some Lincoln pulls up, and a guy gets out wearing a cowboy hat, uh -huh. and comes in, doesn't say his name, doesn't say anything, and we just, the three of us are sitting schmoozing on Maishi's deck. That's it. And the guy starts talking about a story, someone this, someone that, and I, every story he's saying, I'm ending for him. This one had a problem in the, this issue, and there was a problem with the facility, 
And I said, yeah, but uh, they got insurance. It got fully covered. And finally, the guy looks at me and he goes, who are you? And Moishi looks at him, looks at me, he goes, you guys don't know each other? Yeah. And he says, let me introduce you. Tzvi Gluck, this is Mendy Klein. Mendy Klein, this is Tzvi Gluck. Right. Mendy jumps up and gives me this big hug. And he says, what's wrong with you? For two years, I'm trying to reach you. Why are you ignoring me? And I'm like, I don't know who you are. I never heard of you till today. So what do you mean? He goes, my office has been trying to set up a meeting. So I said, okay. I opened up my phone and I typed in his name. And I saw that Karen O'Rourke from RIK Enterprises sent me an email that Robert Klein from Cleveland would like to sit with me. Right. Like, I put that is- straight into spam. Like, <laughs> like, who are you? What do you want? And all of a sudden, Mendy says to me, you know, you should really move to Cleveland with all the problems you're talking about because in Cleveland, things are great. And I was drinking a, a can of Coke or Diet Coke rather. Yeah. And I literally spit it out all over him when he said that. And he's like, what do you mean? I'm like, if you would only know the problems that are really going on in Cleveland, you would not say that. He goes, give me an example. I said, I can't, you know, right. HIPAA. But here's the names of the three people in Cleveland who call me when there's problems. So he calls all three of them up right then and there. And he's like, do you know Tzvi Gluck? I'm like, of course we know Tzvi. This is, that's who I deal he with. with it. Right. So he then calls up his assistant, and I'll never forget this. He says, cancel the rest of my day in New York. Put me on the next flight back to Cleveland and make an emergency meeting with all the rabbis in Cleveland. I want to sit with them tonight. We're going to get to the bottom of this. Wow. And that was when I saw somebody who literally was in pain hearing what we had to say. And uh, that was how I met Mendy. And then a couple of weeks later, he calls me on the phone one night, 9, 30, 10 o'clock at night with Maishi Wolfson on a conference call. And he starts telling me how we're going to change the world. Wow. And in the old Tzvi Gluck fashion, I yelled at him. I was like, who the heck do you think you are? It's because you have money. You're going to tell me what to do. Mm. Everybody has ideas and dreams and visions. Why, why, why was that your re- initial reaction? Because I've heard that so many times. Because people you're have always said out. to me, oh, Tzvi, you're doing great work. We're going to help take it to the next level. I'm like, you know what? Do it. You're right. And nobody ever did it. I mean, even recently, there's a guy from a community here locally who I, I knew something I was involved in. And he's like, oh, we're going to do something. And then Nothing ever happens. Forgets about it. Uh-huh. And I, and I literally hung up the phone. Moishi Wolfson calls me a minute later. He goes, are you crazy? This guy, he, he believes in what you're doing. I'm like, Moishi, I'm sick of all these. And I, I was just so angry. An hour later, now Moishi Wolfson goes to bed early. An hour later, Moishi calls me and he goes, Mendy's flying in tomorrow to meet with you. When can you meet? Wow. And I'm like, after that phone call? And he's like, <laughs> yeah, he loves your passion. And that's when Moishi and Mendy lied to me. The next day, they lied straight to my face. What, they what kind prom- of lie? They promised me, yes, we're going to set up an organization. We're going to eradicate sexual abuse, which was the number one goal when we initially started. And you will never have to raise money. Well, that was the lie. <laughs> yeah, okay. And the, the, the joke I tell people is, if I would have known then what I know now, what the pressures and headaches would have been, I probably would have never done it, which is why I'm so happy I did not know. Wow, because I love what we do, but that's that was how Amudim started. Amazing, amazing, and that and within within the you know with the when you go to Amudim.com, you see in honor of the legacy of, of Mendy well, Klein. Because when Mendy unfortunately passed away suddenly uh, two years ago on Lagbomer, like literally just passed away, mm-hmm. and at the end of the day, Mendy was the main partner and driving force, and we made a decision back in um, 2014. He was well, 2014 we started Amudim, and he passed away uh, 2018, right. and we just made a decision that we are going to be renaming it that Amudim will forever be the legacy of Mendy Klein because you know no matter how much I tried doing before I met Mendy nothing it it was nice I was helping people but really that legacy it's his legacy Amudim is truly his legacy I mean I still miss him and literally cry over him wow it's it, that is amazing, and I and I was I went online to Amudim um, to the website, and I, and there's a beautiful page that you have in honor of his legacy and his videos, and it was really it just was amazing to just get a little glimpse into what kind of what kind of man and individual and human Mendy was, um, and it's incredible the work that you, you guys are doing in his honor. What do you think is the biggest misconception about addiction in the community? So specifically about addiction is people like to blame the addict. It's 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 that person's fault. Well, let's go backwards. Misconception about the existence of addiction or about once we know about it? Because that's really two different questions. Fair enough. Yeah, I would say starting off with what's the biggest misconception, the misconception within, within the, the people that, within the community that you're servicing to? Ah, so the misconception is, first of all, um, people think that we are the first national bank of Amudim. 
So they think they'll just call up Amudim and whatever the cost of treatment is, we'll just write a blank check. I will tell you, we ran the numbers. In 2018, if we were to give money to every single person that just called us straight for money, it would have been about $36 million. Okay, okay, got it. We don't have that kind of money. The second misconception is, which is something that families must be aware of, is it's the addict's problem. Why do I have to go to therapy because my loved one is an addict? They need it, uh, not me. Okay. So, so it's you- like we have to explain to them, no, this is a family problem and everybody needs to get the help. Yeah. Many a time I've heard about, sorry to cut you off, I just, many a time I've heard about, I've heard the reactions after like, you know, having some family members or friends of brothers or or sisters passing away from overdose and such, they'd be upset, right? Very upset. How selfish of the, of the, of the addict of, to like doing this or doing that kind of pain they're putting through the parents, which of course they're very sad, but just to echoing what you said, that there is a lot of that blame that goes on to the addict. Sure. Absolutely. Um, and then the other component is that people don't understand that when, when an addict needs help, they need all the support they can get. And, and, I, and I get into trouble for saying this, but I'll say it again. Nobody ever blamed somebody for having cancer. Even a smoker who gets lung cancer, the family's not sitting with them in Sloan Kettering saying, you deserve it, you got... But when it comes to addiction, everybody blames the addict. We have to remember it's a disease. And the same way if somebody has diabetes or heart condition or something else, we care for them, we love them, we're there for them, we need to do the same for those struggling and suffering with addiction. That's our obligation. Mm. It's a communal obligation. It's not Svigloch's problem. It's not Amudim's problem. It's our problem. It's everybody's problem. Um, and don't get me wrong. There's a lot of great people out there doing a lot of great work. Sure. But there's still so much more that needs to be done. Right. And, and, mean, and to understand the fact that it's, what you guys do is beyond just addiction, of course, right? You mentioned sexual abuse. You mentioned um, um, domestic violence. Um, there's also, you're flying around burials and, and getting- Well, by- the burials and stuff mostly, uh, let me just say this. Amudim has, has shifted a lot of the work that I've been doing in the non-Amudim sector is still being done, mm-hmm. but we're not doing it as Amudim. Meaning it, we're very clear so, now that Amudim as an organization deals with what Amudim deals with. Yes, there's other types of emergencies that people will call me because it's either uh, I have the knowledge or, and I actually, hire, and I actually hired an assistant just to help me in that department to make it easier. Mm-hmm. So for that, but Amudim is really focusing on the abuse, addiction, and, and mental illness components because we need to remain focused. Does one come with the other? Does someone have a mental illness and then lead to addiction? Does one get you know have a sexual abuse? Yes, taking no, place and then right. Yes, no, yeah, maybe chicken so. egg Ma- yeah. makes no. So here's the answer: sometimes yeah, sometimes no but it doesn't matter. Okay. The fact is, whatever we're dealing with, we need to deal with. Now, do we as Amudim try to find the, the root cause so that we can help deal with the actual triggers? So it's not just about getting somebody sober, but it's about getting them sober with their triggers being dealt with so that they don't relapse. Of course, you always wanna know the root cause. I mean, we're data freaks. We, we mm. love data. I run algorithms all the time. Ages, genders, marital status, communities of origin. Where are the problems greater? Where are they not greater? And I, I do that because we find that without proper data, you can't do proper prevention. And I'm going to say this straight. My goal is to create enough prevention modules to put Amudim out of business. That's my real goal. I want to get to this issue before it gets to us, not after. Sure. So we use data for that. And what kind of change have you seen within the community shift in consciousness oh. and awareness and actual like action from when you guys started till now. That's if you see my smile. This yeah, is like, this I see, is like, I see this a is, smile. So that's, this is like that's a, the nachas right this, there. This is the nachas. Um, whereas years ago, people would call us up, for example, with uh, when their children were molested, they would call us up years later mm. or sometimes even wait till their child was over 18 so they knew that they can get away with not reporting because they were scared and all these other things. We're noticing in the last year and a half to two years, we're getting calls within days and weeks of incidents occurring. People are reaching out right away saying, this is what happened, we need help. So that's huge. Mm. We're also noticing a lot on the addiction side. People are calling up at early warning detections. Uh, I'm noticing my loved one is starting to come home with blurry eyes, sleeping too much, doing all these other things. You know, so really it's it's been... I mean, there's so much more to be done, Sure, but it's like we're noticing a massive trend. And, and I want to say this is not just the credit of Amudim. There's a lot of great organizations, great awareness. There's a lot of good people out there. We just happen to be one, one part of a, of a chessboard that's, you know, called the world. I mean, true that. When someone, I mean, just, just to piggyback, when someone does have, what are some signs you would say? or how? What's the best approach that a friend or a family member can 
you know, go over to someone that they seem is struggling? What's what's a kind way, a, a way that won't shut them down, uh, that will close them up or isolate? What's something? What's a, a good advice from your experience that someone could go and say, "Hey, you need some need some Best help." Best advice: They shouldn't do it at all. They shouldn't. They should, they should not. They should reach out to a professional. Whether See, it's, don't have a conversation do, with them. Like, I, hey, I, I do not believe that anybody going to his friend who's an addict and saying, hey, brother, you got a problem, is going to make them change. The same way nobody ever says to you, hey, don't smoke, you're going to get sick. I think people should speak to a professional, explain what's going on, because every person who's an addict has there's different reasons behind it, and get the proper skill set and tools, and then know how to say it. Mm. I'm not going to give a blanket statement what to say, because the blanket statement might work for A and not for B, and if it backfires, I'm not going to take that chance. Got it. What I will say is, if a person comes to a friend and says, hi, I'm struggling, or I was abused, or I have an addiction or something, I always say, validate the feelings, never lie, and tell the person you'll do the best you can to help get them support. So for example, wow, that's so brave that you told me this. Let me see what I can do. It's so powerful. I'm so proud of you. We'll, we will get through this together. Let me figure out how. That's what I would say if it's the other side of the coin. Mm. On the abuse side, what I would not say is, oh, you better not say anything to anybody. That person can come after you. You're never going to get a shidduch. You know, the dirtiest word in the Jewish language Ooh. is the S word. Yes, shidduch. shidduch. Oh. That's a big one. And on that topic, you have a, I mean, a very strong and, and moving story, which I, I've, I would love for you to share about how um, you mentioned how a, uh, a woman was having some issues with, with prescription drugs. And she didn't want to get any help because... Oh, that's... So we, I mean, we have, by the way, we have a bunch of those, but this is just one of them that's gone out where we had a woman, she had, I think, five kids at the time, and she was a serious opioid addict, and it was not even her fault. She had a issue during childbirth and ended up developing an addiction based on real pain and right. surgical Prescribed procedure, and you doctors know, gave her this the medicine. whole nine yards, and we did a full intervention with the family and in-laws and siblings and therapist did and she reach out on her own Does no her, her husband out? reached out okay. and, and we tried everything and i'm finally after everything failed i looked at her straight in the face and i said mrs so-and-so you do realize you're going to end up dead and she said to me i know but i cannot go to rehab and i said why not she goes because if i go to rehab i'm labeled an addict and my kids will never get shidduchim i said but you'll be dead she goes, yes, but then my kids will be orphans and they'll get shidduchim. Now, thank God in that case, and I always end off the story by saying she did great. She really, like she's doing great now. Thank but God. the fact that wow. she really believed that means that we need to do more to destigmatize this. Amazing. Wow. That's just, that just shows how... how how is deeply seeped that is within one's consciousness that this, like the priorities, is, I'd rather be die than, than when it comes to Shadokhan. Absolutely. What, wh why do you think it's so scary for us to process the idea that other people aren't perfect in the sense that like, my gosh, you know, our children won't be able to handle, I mean, if we look internally, we're just mirrors of each other. What's so hard, what, what is this facade that we're trying to, to uphold? So I think it's a little bit of a couple of, there's a few different things. I, if I had the real answer to that, then I'd be a genius, but I don't. Right. But some of the things that I've noticed on that is, um, first of all, everybody likes to be the best at whatever they can be, and everybody likes everybody to think things are perfect. And let's use the social media world as the example. Have you ever seen a husband and wife fighting on social media, posting it on Facebook? No. Have you seen loving, amazing pictures, beautiful, we're on vacation together? All the time. Have you then found that a week later they got divorced? Sure. Now what? Right. So we're living in a world that the entire world has become for others. The entire world. It's not a Jewish issue. The entire world is for others. So that's just going to continue translating into everything else. So part of what we need to do is get the message out and say, stop hiding. Come out of your shell. Help is available. Mm. Do you think it's a, do you think when it comes on Shadokim, do you think it's smart for quote unquote people who've gone through who are going through addiction to like to be paired up together? Is that something that you know people try to come to you and say, hey, I know this girl or this guy, and you know he went through this and that? Like, is that so? Very often it happens on their own. <laughs> people yeah, okay. meet, people meet in rehab. They meet in AA meetings, NA meetings. Um, I think people should be paired up because they're good for each other. Nothing to do with addiction or not. I will tell you, some of the strongest people I know are recovering addicts. Because mm -hmm. these are people that have overcome so many struggles. The people say to me, oh my God, I would never let my child date someone in recovery. I'm like, are you kidding? 
That's exactly. I mean, that's a person who's strong, who's has convictions, who's able to overcome. Mm-hmm. I mean, you that's, know, that's right. Someone who's developed that's, that's and, my, and faced uh, life and just didn't hide away and, and, and showed up. The the one thing that I I mean that you mentioned and that I've heard from many friends describe you as someone has chutzpah, right? Someone who's like literally mm. you, <laughs> as you say sarcastically. But you, this is the one of the defining like characteristics that you that you possess and that you've used to, to for for goodness for the, for the good. Where where did I mean? I know you mentioned that you saw you grew up in a in a, in a family that with your dad and and seeing the chassid and, and doing the leadership that he that he that he, that he accomplished, but. Where, where did you have to grow this? Where did you grow these quote unquote Batesim to go out and like face and to make these phone calls and to show up? And how does one develop that in their own life when it comes to going after their passions or what they believe in? So I, I can I can say it as follows: My father has more chutzpah than I'll ever have, and I've seen this growing up and of the stories I've heard. When my father was working on initially starting Hatzal, there were opposition up the wazoo. Nothing got in his way. We're going to make this happen. My father created the Mincha area, the world famous Mincha area, driving upstate. Why? Because he was working for the state police at the time. <clears throat> and the state police called him up and said, all these uh, Hasidic Jews with the whiskers are stopping on the side of the road and it's dangerous and you got to put a stop to it. So my father was always the one that said, put a stop to it. Let's just find a solution, right? It's always mm-hmm. about solutions, never problems, always solutions. Made a Mincha area. Right away, gets sued by the New York Civil Liberties Union. Separation, church, and state. Can't call it Mincha area. You can look it up. New York Times article, 1993. Oh. Great article. <laughs> so they changed the name to meeting area. Okay, great. What are you going to do? Um, when it came to the autopsy law, when it came to dealing with anything. So chutzpah is something that runs in our blood. But hopefully we try to use it for the good, and I try to you know, use it in ways that are going to help others. Don't get me wrong. I wasn't always like this. I mean, it took a lot of talent for someone like me to go to 14 high schools in three and a half years. Okay. Hey, I mean, look at that. Me and you, uh, we're pretty close. We're pretty close. I've gone, not four, I went to like 10. Okay, 11. so we're pretty yeah. close. Yeah. Now, I always say, being Rabbi Glock's son got me into them. It, it <laughs> didn't <laughs> keep me there. Um, That's great. And, and the truth is, it was usually the difference of opinion. I wanted to be the Rosh Hashiva. Somebody else already had the job, so I left. You know, you do what you got to do. But, but, you know, and I always say that, that those are my life experiences that, that really That's made right. me who I am. As far as the message to other people, so I just gave a class at a, at a high school where they asked me to come teach a class, you know, about how to help people. And I'm like, I, I don't know how to teach that. I just think if you just follow the Pirkei Ovas, the ethics of our fathers, that's it. That's all you got to do. I mean, wake up in the morning and the first person you see, smile at every person you see. Jewish, not Jewish, man, woman, makes, just smile. Good morning. How are you? You see somebody struggling, even the smallest thing, try to help them. No, people don't have to aspire to be the next hero. You know, a hero is not the person in the cape that's, oh my God, the cape crusader. The mm. hero is the person who, some guy's got a flat tire and you stop on the side of the road and you change their tire. Yeah. Hero is the guy that sets up a barbershop in the middle of the street in Manhattan and takes a homeless person and says, hey, we're going to help clean you up and get you a job. Yeah. That's a hero. Now, Mayor Kate, you're a hero, but did you change the world? You changed somebody's world. Mm. And every one person's world you changed, that's what defines people. So I always say, just just be nice. Come up with a great way to help somebody. Somebody can't carry their bags. Offer to help them carry their bags. How many times you come out of a grocery store and there's an elderly gentleman? Simple things. Opening the door for somebody before you go in. Waiting for the next elevator. And if you do that and it becomes culture... You know, that's just the just nice thing to do. Thing, yeah. It reminds me of that Mr. Rogers quote where like he was watching some tragedy was taking place on TV and he was getting a little frightened and his mother pointed out by saying, look, there's, in any case when there's a tragedy or there's some sort of crisis going on, look out for the helpers. In anything, there's always going to be people there helping. Focus on that. I mean, be a helper. As a Hatzala member at 9-11 at Ground Zero, yeah. um, I will tell you that, I mean, we were all there I mean, we had crazy stories there. My father got trapped in the building, was then found someplace else miraculously. Wow. I actually met my wife, Ground Zero, <laughs> at 9-11. I mean, that's... On the, the day, uh, Ground 9/11, Zero? 9-11, Ground Zero, I met my wife. I'll get to that story in a second, but the, the part about... And we have, to, we have to give her some credit as well. As give that. her some credit? Give her all the credit. If, yeah. if not for the support that she gives me, I wouldn't be able to do anything. This is not some credit. Mm. My wife, Aviva, has been... Uh, literally, and I say this all the time, my rock in... in put, you, know, you know how many times I've 
had the idea of, okay, I can't deal with this anymore. I'm ready to just, I'm just going to go find another job. I mean, <sighs> imagine the pressure I'm under every day. I can't imagine. She's, she's my rock. Wow. Um, but before I get to that story, just sure. quickly, seeing the amount of civilians out there trying to help, seeing the goodness that came out of 9-11, New Yorkers, the, the craziest city in the world, nobody cares for anybody else, traffic lights weren't working, people were directing traffic, people were bringing water to first responders and just food and making sure neighbors were okay. But yeah, my wife was, uh, was an EMT at the time, as was I. I was, uh, I was in paramedic school already. But I wasn't a paramedic yet, I don't believe. Mm. I have to look up my dates. I'm getting old. And uh, at some point, I come back to ground zero, and we're, we're staged, you know, at that solo staging area, and I see a hot solo ambulance with three of my buddies and some girl on it. And this girl is wearing scrubs and an EMT badge on a hot solo ambulance wow. as, and assigned as the crew. <laughs> and I, I turn around, and I'm like, Who, who's that? Somebody said, I'm like, Oh my God, what a hawker. I pity the fool that ever marries her. <laughs> no way. True story. Wow. Those were the words I said. And, <laughs> and boy, did I eat my words. That's no, right, but, that's um, right. But you know, because it was an uncommon thing. But I met my wife at you know, 9-11 again, the type of personality she has. She's a nurse. She's a flight nurse. She's mm -hmm. a lactation consultant. She worked for many years in a school for at-risk um, teens. So she's very much involved in the work we do. But because of the Amudim Zero Nepotism Clause, which we are very, very strict about, you know, she'll never get a job here. Right. Nobody in my family will ever get a job here. Wow. Um, you know, Let that be known, uh, family members. Yeah, Next please time, stop yeah. applying. Stop <laughs> calling up saying, Plain I'm Tzvi's nephew, I need a job. You're not getting the job here. I'm sorry. <laughs> That's it's just not happen. <laughs> um, no, but we're very strict about, you know, about our audits and our yeah. finances. I mean, even, uh, you know, even financially. Listen, my last name is Gluck with an umlau. Not Gluck or Glick. We're German. We could be make believe as Hasidish as we want. My wife is a Meyerfeld. She's German. We are as Yakish as they come. People always make fun of me. They're like Dot your eyes, cross your T's. All the time. People yeah. are like, oh, on your website you have your audited financials and your auditor's report and your management letter. Aren't you scared if something bad is written in one of the management comments? And I'm like, no, because first of all, Amudin belongs to the public. They have the right to see everything. Second of all, if there's something bad in the management report, you know what that means? We got to get better. We're, we're, yeah, we're so gonna. that's what we got to do. The so, transparency is so <clears> key. I mean, I, throughout your whole, and even when it comes down to your numbers, which is very, very appreciated because unfortunately, a lot of times one can come across organizations that aren't as... You know, I, I speak for ourselves. I don't yeah. speak about other organizations. No, we, we, we should, I'm always commending that it's, right. it, we, we, it, we it, it does follow through. The, the integrity is there throughout. Absolutely. And it's the same thing with, with the clinical work. I mean, our case managers cannot log into the system and see another case if it's not assigned to them. Mm, Every staff wow. member can only see their workload. They cannot see anybody else's. That's you know, there's a lot of real provisions here to protect the integrity and the privacy and the anonymity of those who are coming to us for help. Mm. We have to protect the money of the public that gives us money, and we have to protect the privacy of those that are coming to us for help. And we have to balance that. 100%, 100%. So moving moving forward, um, well, before we do, actually, as one last thing I want to ask you about when it comes to like one thing you guys are also known for, uh, you take a lot of investment in is your PSA videos, the videos that you put out on on social media, the music videos that you put out. I'm just curious because they're done very professionally and it, it really hits home. I wonder though, a lot of the videos that are out there, they're so moving, they're so raw. And do you feel like by toning it down a bit, by the messaging, do you feel like more people would see it? And so this way the message will go out to more eyeballs? Do I have your permission to play a one minute voice note on this podcast? Absolutely, sure. And just to finish the question, as obviously, or to, or to, or you say rather no, let's show how it is and whoever could handle it, will handle it in this, in this far. First of all, I want to tell you that what you're seeing is already toned down. If you would see the original versions of what we put out, you would go crazy. This is already the watered down version. Okay. But the point of these videos are for people to reach out for help. We do put trigger warnings on them. We do try to give people the heads up. We do try. However, at the same time, it is extremely crucial that we show people what's real. Thank you. Tonight, I came home and I celebrated my 40th birthday. And I was able to enjoy my birthday immensely. And I want to thank you for the video that you put out. 
two years ago, someone else celebrating his 40th birthday. When I watched that video, I cried for three days because all the pain that I suffered for the 28 and a half years, I felt was just a natural struggle that people have to go through to survive and be normal. But after watching that video, I realized it was a direct result of the sick people that took advantage of me as a child. But since then, I went into intense therapy. And thank God, my perspective of myself, my relationship to my children are worlds apart. And I was emotionally touched that I reached this point on my 40th birthday when my wife turned to me and said, I hope it's not bringing back the pain of that video. And I responded, no, I'm so far from that. And I'd like to thank you and Amutim for all that you do. Much appreciation and aslacha and everything. Thank you. <sighs> wow. All right, that says it. There's the answer. This is a person who did not even come to Amudim for help. Saw the video, found his own therapist, and then sent me this voice note. I had no idea who it was. Wow. This was not somebody that I knew. Right, but that, 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 that After started After every the, the video process. that we put out, we get hundreds of phone calls. Now, yes, we do get complaints and comments. Don't get me wrong. I mean, my most recent video, I got the best, the best complaints. I'm so, I got to make fun of it. <laughs> what you're smiling about. So we did the Nissan Black music video hold on, hold on which yeah. that song is so amudim i mean that's yeah. that song is amudim oh it's great <clears throat> we got complaints about the fact that the wife was putting her arm her hand on her husband's shoulder to try to calm him down now that whole scene lasted about three seconds yes yeah, yeah. we did not get one complaint about a scene showing a alleged pedophile trying to molest a child right like what are you complaining about the sneeze factor or the kid being abused and that's why we still have to do more work Hmm. So, that, I mean, that's, that's pretty wild. Do you find, like, why is it and how often does it happen that people hide behind religious, you know, um, ideas and, 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 and halakha laws than to actually hit the nail on the head and say, hey, this is what's happening. This is the issue. Why, why, by de why deflect? What, it's, an easy, it's an easy out. I mean, one of our videos that we put out had a picture of a bedroom and it only had one bed in it. Hmm. And we got complaints from people. Why didn't you show the bedroom with two beds? Because Orthodox couples have two beds in the room. There was no scene of the couple sleeping together. This wasn't a, you know, you watch TV. I mean, I had a Rebbe that used to make a joke. And he said, I remember the days when the right. only isser of watching TV was Bittelsman. Our videos are nothing compared to that. I think what it is, is, is we get it from both sides of the coin. The people that are on the ultra-right, ultra-from, they like to always say, Amudeh makes a chilol Hashem, you're embarrassing the world, you're exposing things. The people on the left like to say, you're not going after people enough, you're not going after the rabbis. All we want to do is help people. That's right. all we want to do. We want to do it by every means possible. Every video we put out is written by us, produced by us, our clinical team reviews it. We make sure, and if you watch the videos, you'll see how real and how clear even the innuendos are. I mean, in the most recent video of Hold On, right? Sure. So somebody says to me, what was the scene of the bicycle? It wasn't going anywhere. And I'm like, that's the idea, right? That's the point. Right. This kid is trapped. Right. He can't go anywhere. You know, he can't get it out of his head. But then when you see that light come in and now it goes back to when he's now older mm -hmm. and you see him sitting on that bench, ah, Everything is done with real thought. It's not like, oh, Tzvi Gluck is, just wants to make a video and make people. No, the purpose of these videos are to wake people up and to get them to come to us for help or to go to anybody for help. Yeah. We don't care. Go to anybody. The video we put out of um, This Is Not Us, the one that was paid for by a U.S. Uh, grant from the Department of Justice, that's the one that shows the, a girl that was abused either yeah. by a family member or by a teacher or by a principal. You know, we purposely keep it vague. Yes. But the one thing that's consistent is it shows different scenes. Same family, Hasidish, Litvish, modern right. Orthodox, Very secular. Well Very well done. Right? Yeah. So everybody got upset at us about that. And I'm like, uh, the purpose of that video is to show that this is everywhere. So 
at the end of the day, it's not that they're hiding behind religion. Religion is an easy way to say, you know, we can't make a chilal Hashem. And let me tell you something. Do you know what a chilal Hashem is? When I have to tell parents that their kid died of an overdose or committed suicide. That's a chilal Hashem. You know what a chilal Hashem is? When somebody that's married for 15 years who all of a sudden now has a child that's the same age that they were when they were molested and they never got the help that they needed and they tried and now they are going through a divorce because of it or they're going through a mental crisis or some breakdown, that's a Chilal Hashem. Don't come sell me on Chilal Hashem on the videos and articles that we do. Right. No, that's a Kiddush Hashem. And we're going to keep making a Kiddush Hashem in the way we know how by doing our best to change lives and build futures. Amen to that. That's uh, incredible, powerfully said, and maybe blessed to continue being the pillar that you are, and the team that you built, and the and the uh, and the Amudim organization should continue to flourish and to really keep on helping, saving, and changing lives for many, many more years to come. And like you said, until God willing, you won't need it. Not because of lack of funds, because God willing, people will have the help that they need. We're very lucky to have you and uh, and and the incredible work that you're up to with Amudim. And um, what are, I mean, what are the future plans? How do you see Amudim growing? And what are some some goals that you want to see changed or illuminated within the community so moving forward? For the short term plans, we really do need to increase our our case management staff, which is a fortune of money because we just have way more clients than the ability to handle them. Um, we're also working on a very, very, very comprehensive education program for schools, a curriculum-based project, which has evidence-based research that I firmly believe if we can raise the $2 million we need to get that project up and running, we will cut our caseload by 80% within five years. Wow. I will say that straight. Prevention is the key. Um, other short-term goals is whether we do it as a mudim or we help other organizations do it, we're big fans of partnering. We love partnering with other organizations. The goal is the same. You just want to get it done. <clears throat> Let's get it done. But we're hoping to expand the amount of support groups available on all areas and, and broken down because in some of the Hasidic communities, we need gender segregated support groups and some of the other ones, it doesn't make a difference. And then we want for victims, for survivors, for family members, spouses, children. So we want to focus on support groups a little bit. Um, and really, we just want to keep doing what we do while simultaneously trying to focus on the prevention side. And literally, and I, and I say this, and it might sound cheesy, but I really, I hope for the day that we no longer need to exist, but not because of lack of funds. Mm -hmm. That's that's the trick. True, 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 true. Where can people find you, hear more about Amudim? Where could they... F um, amudim.org amudim.org.il for those that are in Israel we have uh, you know we have a sister office in Israel that's uh, focused on the Anglo community there whether it's students in yeshivas or seminaries or even people that made Aliyah but they don't speak Hebrew and they can't access services because of language barriers um, but really just go to the website everything is there it's you know www.amudim a-m-u-d-i-m dot org um, and uh you know, I guess that's that. I mean, we never really spent money on marketing or advertising, so I know that our SEO is not really that great, and we're not good at that stuff, but we're getting there. We're yeah. getting there. We're getting there, you know? All right. And yeah. Listen, fielding 200 calls a day without advertising says something. That's insane. Yo, it's just, just okay, before we end up, just throw out some numbers. Like, I, you, even before the podcast, you showed me about, like, I like thousands of calls and like what that's just in, so in, the numbers are insane so we pride ourselves on not the numbers numbers don't mean anything what numbers mean is what we can do to learn from it to get better mm -hmm. right so it's not like oh look what we did based on numbers I want to make that clear mm -hmm. numbers are a tool they're not the solution but we pride ourselves on tracking our numbers. I showed you the actual back end of our phone system and our database. Incredible. You saw the numbers. The details, yeah. In the year 2019, we opened up 1,660 new cases. We had an active caseload of 2,802. Now remember, just because a case opened up doesn't mean it closes right away. So 2,802 people whose lives were transformed during the year 2019. Our call volume was over 75,000 calls between incoming and outgoing calls in 2019. Our budget was over five and a half million dollars um, compared to 380,000 in 2014. I got to tell you, I found an email that I sent Mendy Klein all of a shalom in 2015 where I was crying. We had three case managers then. I said, Mendy, please, I need more money. We need to hire more staff. We can't handle it. 
We're opening up four new cases a week. We need help. <laughs> this past week, we opened up 77 new cases in one week. 77, wow. That means 77 wow. new lives that will forever be changed, hopefully. Amen. So our numbers are key because it helps us learn. But also, don't forget, the numbers are very important for other reasons. For example, we ran a study on couples that got divorced within the first 36 months of marriage. Mm. <clears throat> Is there... Does it usually come down to something for one particular reason? We wanted to know. Right. And in that study, it turned out that 60% of them were victims of childhood sexual abuse. And how do we prevent that? And that was actually, so that data set is what got us to say, we got to do something in Israel. Right. Because if we get to them in yeshiva and seminary before they start dating, it's one prevention method. So it's- It's also very smart, right? Because instead of focusing like, okay, why, you know, let's focus on this problem of divorce, but rather go to the essence of it is like- Always. Right. I mean, let's get to the root cause. Right. Does, but, but here's the thing. We can't stop doing, people say to me all the time, so you have all these data sets and you have great ideas. Why don't you just like, you know, go backwards and, you know, only focus on that. And I'm like, because people are bleeding. We can't let them bleed. We have to stop the bleeding while we're also focusing on prevention. We have an entire team, seven people that not part of our 39 staff at Amudim, that are part of a totally separate entity that are just focusing on curriculum comp components for schools. You know, we're not not doing the prevention. We're not only doing, but we got to do it together so people that need help can get it while we're still working on solving the issues up front got before it. they happen. True that, true that. And um, we spoke about some of the um, the, sh the strengths of of Tzvi. What are some What are some things? What are some of the weaknesses? My biggest weakness, and this is, it's my fault, but it's a problem. I have this unrealistic expectation that just the same way I would do something for others, I just expect them to do the same for me, and I know it's wrong. My biggest pet peeve: I, I have to raise money. It's the hardest part of this job. I hate it. I would think in a way this would sell itself. Yeah, yeah, I wish. I'm right. main. But when I call somebody up to try to raise money and I get the runaround, oh, not now, doing a deal, call me in a month, call me in two months, call my... Just tell me no. My time is too valuable for you to make me chase you for six months. And I say this to people for any organization. If a person is giving his life to help raise money for an organization or that runs an organization... Value them. Don't make them feel like garbage. You know, that term schnurrer. Right. You know, oof. like, that's... oof. And I tell people all the time, I'm a glorified schnurrer because that's what it's become. But value my time. Value every fundraiser's time. Fundraisers don't have an easy job. And by the way, there's nothing wrong with saying no. The same way when somebody calls me if it's something I can't help with, or they call our staff, we say, I'm sorry, it's not for us. Do the same thing. But my biggest struggle is just dealing with people that just play with you. Mm. Yeah, we'll get you a check. We won't. We sent it. It's in the mail. You know, in today's day and age, if you could wire the money, chase, quick pay, send credit card, that's my biggest issue. And you know why? Because emotionally, what that does to me is it devalues the work we do. And that's usually what causes me to have internal shutdowns. Mm. If a guy says, listen, Svi, I'm supporting 20 other causes I can't now, that's great. Keep doing what you do. But when you don't value what we do, and, and, I, and I say this on behalf of every fundraiser in the world. I take the liberty of speaking on their behalf to anybody that has money or to anyone that's asked to donate money. If you don't plan on doing it, just say no. Just say no campaign did not work against drugs. Maybe it'll work for this. Mm -hmm. Just say no. Say, I'm sorry, I can't. But if you're going to give a commitment, follow through. And another thing I got to tell people is pledges don't pay the staff. Pledges don't pay for therapy. Pledges don't pay for rehab. People make pledges and then they have no intention of honoring them. And then you call up a year later, oh, uh, I meant it, but I'm going to give you half. Okay, so I'll take what you'll give, but come on. Yeah. So that to me is the hardest part. I got to be honest. I could deal with the craziest emergencies, most difficult things, family dynamics. But when it comes to this, it's just painful to me. Got it. Thank you, Tzvi. You're amazing. God bless you, Mayor, brother. thank you, thanks really. And uh, thanks for keeping this world as great as it is. And keep, yeah. keep putting smiles on people's faces. I, I love seeing you by Simachot. I love seeing you. Amen, Just amen. Just keep doing it. For sure, for sure. Thank you very much. And uh, yeah, I mean, I'm glad we were able to finally get a, a collaboration of sorts between... Oh, please. We've been trying for so long. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It, uh, it, it finally I'm happened. glad it came together, man. Thanks a lot for sharing. You got it. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you, Tzvi. Thank you, Amudim, for all the incredible work that you do. 
May we, like you mentioned in the podcast, not need your services anymore, but until then, may be blessed to continue doing your holy work. And thank you, friends, for listening in, tuning in, showing your support. It goes a long, long way to making these podcasts a reality, to share these stories, to bring shed light on the incredible people and organizations that are doing amazing work in this world. If you haven't yet, please subscribe to the podcast and uh, give it a comment, give it a like, a follow. It goes a long way. And share it with family and friends if you find any value um, in what you're listening. Uh, we do launch these every Monday. So tune in next Monday for the next episode of the Great Day Podcast. And until then, wishing you a beautiful and great day ahead. Oh, 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 oh,